Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in German Studies, a podcast on offer from the New Books Network. My name is Eric Gruby. I'm a doctoral candidate in the Department of History at Boston College, and I'm one of the hosts for this channel. Today, we are thrilled and honored to be joined by Charles R. Gallagher, a Jesuit priest. Father Gallagher is Associate Professor of History at Boston College. In 2017, he was the William J. Lowenberg Memorial Fellow on America, the Holocaust, and the Jews at the Mandel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, Washington, D.C. In 2009, his book, Vatican Secret Diplomacy, Joseph P. Hurley and Pope Pius XII, 2008, won the American Catholic Historical Association's John Gilmary Shea Prize. In 2012, he edited with Dave Kertzer and Alberto Meloni, Pius XI in America, Proceedings from the Brown University Conference from Berlin Litverlag. His newest book, Nazis of Copley Square, The Forgotten Story of the Christian Front, was published in September 2021 by Harvard University Press. He is interested in the intersection of intelligence and religion, religion and right-wing movements, the Holocaust, American Catholicism, and Vatican diplomacy. Father Gallagher, thank you so much for being here with us today. You're welcome. It's great to be with you, Eric. Um, so I guess to start things off, uh, please tell us, how did you come to this topic? How does it situate in the context of your intellectual and professional trajectories? Yeah, so like many historians, there's uh, usually a professional side to our research and a personal side. Um, the personal side began when I was a sophomore in college, and um, I was helping my father clean out his uh basement. We were, we were moving houses. And uh, I came across my grandfather's scrapbook from the 1930s. And I started thumbing through it. And uh, my grandfather had a number of newspaper clippings about a priest that was on the radio in the 1930s named Father Charles Coughlin. Uh, Coughlin was probably the most um, well-known Catholic voice. He was, in my view, the first celebrity priest. And as I was flipping through those newspaper clippings, I saw one about, it was, it was from the Associated Press, about a group of Catholics who were charged with trying to overthrow the U.S. government. And uh, this, um, to me, was quite interesting, uh, mainly because uh, when I was in graduate school, the grand narrative of American Catholic history was about assimilation of Catholics and uh, the um, correlation between American Catholicism and, uh, and patriotism during the period of both wars. And uh, I found this, um, this armed uh, seditionist intervention to be uh, quite, uh, quite interesting. Um, and so, um, so I, I uh, went back to, uh, when I was an undergraduate, um, I uh, remembered my grandfather's scrapbook and um, I went to one of my professors and asked if I could do a, like a 10 page research paper on the Christian front. And uh, that, that uh, professor dissuaded me from doing that. He said, no, they, they didn't do anything. Um, for example, they never, they never detonated any bombs. They never shot any bullets. It was a uh, 
farce of a case and um, it wasn't worth wasting my time. And someone had already written a chapter, a book chapter on the case in the, in the first place. So uh, I was kind of wasting my time. I still thought that this was extraordinary, an extraordinary case. Um, and um, as I started uh, finishing my f- first book, uh, Vatican Secret, Le- Secret Diplomacy, and to, in 2000, published in 2008, um, I uh, saw that the folks at the Vatican I was, it was, uh, were concerned about the case. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, here we have the highest levels of the Vatican, the Secretariat of State, really concerned about these these groups of uh, this group of Catholic, uh, what are essentially terrorists in New York, being charged with sedition, and uh, that conversation was making itself um, known to the Secretary of State and and presumably to the Pope. And uh, I thought I filed that away again. I thought, um, gosh, I really ought to. I really think there is more here to this case than than meets the historiography, if you will. And so I uh, decided to start digging. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, that, that lovely kind of personal and intellectual response, right? It's interesting when those kind of, as you said, those paths sort of intersect um, in many ways, right? So I'm wondering, could you give us sort of the broad brushstrokes outline of the narrative you provide in your book, Nazis of Copley Square? Yeah, so the broad brush stroke was something that I had to figure out on my own in terms of the size of the canvas and where to purchase it. Um, When I started my digging, I found that no one had been able to uncover the FBI file on the case. And so I went to the National Archives in Washington, textual reference branch, and I uh, implored them to look in their files for a case, uh, a case file. And they assured me that none existed. And I was um, really perplexed by this because uh, in my research, just in the newspapers, the case was coast to coast front page coverage uh, from January of 1914 through the or 1940, January of 1940 through the um, the end of the case in this early summer of, of 1940. And um, I, I thought it was extraordinary that what they were telling me that there was no FBI file. I then talked to a, a, a doctoral student at Fordham who was writing a dissertation on on the Christian front, and he assured me as well that there was no FBI file and um, that he was using court documents. And I wasn't too sure about using court documents because of the kind of level of uh, legal um, argument uh, in there. And so... Um, I wanted to get the FBI file. I wanted to get the investigative file. And uh, I uh, kept digging and digging. And the people at the archives were getting kind of short uh, with me. And uh, they said, you need a case number. So I started digging around and I uh, I found something. I found a conversation on Reddit. I wasn't even sure what Reddit was, but it was a conversation among uh, kind of uh, right wing people. And somebody tossed out in the in the course of this conversation what looked to me like an FBI file. And what I recognized as an FBI file, it had all the right letters and numbers in the right places. And um, and so I copied down that number 
And I took it back to the National Archives and uh, I said, listen, I think this is the, the, the file number. They went back and checked their, their catalog um, and sure enough, it was. And then I started um, a conversation with the FBI. I had three different um, telephone calls with the declassification unit in Langley about getting the file declassified in 2011. Uh, and they were concerned because I asked them, I said, why am I having three separate phone calls with you to get this file released? And they said, Professor Gallagher, we're, we have to make a decision about resources. And uh, this is the one of the largest files in our inventory. To put it in context, they said to me, it's as, it's as large as the file on Martin Luther King Jr. and the SCLC. Um, and so uh, I asked them if they could go ahead and do that. They were very gracious um, and uh, went ahead and, and declassified the file. It was about 2,500 pages long. It had about, I think, 85 pages that were redacted or redacted in part. But um, I started receiving them in 2012 through, they, they would send uh, DVDs in the mail. They're excellent, excellent declassification section at the FBI. I was just uh, really thrilled with their professionalism and their uh, willingness to, um, to work with me and uh, get that file declassified. That's an amazing story and shows us something, you know, constructive can come out of the kind of wildest parts of the, the internet, right? Especially something from a right wing, right wing Reddit thread, right? Um, so I guess, you know, getting to this, this FBI file kind of leads me to, to a question about basically what was your intent in writing the book? What, what interventions do you make in historiography, um, either about right-wing extremism or about espionage or about Catholicism more broadly, right? What are your sort of, um, your key moves in historiographical chessboard? Yeah. So my first key move was basically to try to upend all that I'd been taught in grad school. (laughs) I know you're Those a graduate best, student. Yeah. But, all right, so, yeah. So, I mean, in grad school, they had me reading about this arc of American Catholic history where, you know, the Democratic Party uh, was uh, becoming ascendant and that the uh, majority of Catholics uh, were part of that liberal consensus forming under Roosevelt. Um, and that the assimilationist aspects of the, of, 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 uh, of immigration were coming into play and that Catholics were proving themselves on the battlefields of uh, World War One and World War Two, and that any suspicion of Catholics against uh, democracy and against um, the U.S. government could be put aside now that Catholics were making it and soon enough, you know, John F. Kennedy would be elected and, uh, and all would be well in the Catholic house. And, uh, I just saw I saw these guys who were charged with sedition, as I mentioned in the book. Saint Thomas Aquinas calls sedition a very special sin. It's actually, uh, in in his view, it was it was called a reserved sin. Uh, in other words, one of the most grave sins uh, a citizen could commit uh, was the charge of trying to overthrow one civilly constituted government. So. I saw these. I saw this case, and uh, then I saw pictures of the weapons that these 
folks were working with and were holding and the bombs that they were building. And part of it, too, was my my personal history was at the time I was a police officer, a summer police officer in my hometown in Nantucket. And um, I was being trained on semi-automatic weaponry. I was being trained on um, on single pump shotguns and things like that. And um, I, I was aware of uh, the damage that that the uh, guns and ammo could do. And um, I knew that uh, caching 30-06 rounds, a 30-06 round is about a it's a three inch, over three inches, a uh, bullet, full metal jacket, and it's more powerful than the NATO round that the U.S. Army uses today. It'll go. It's a single bullet that'll crash through a brick wall, like uh, like a knife through butter. And um, and so these these Christian front leaders were stocking uh, thousands of rounds of thirty out six ammo. They were using Springfield nineteen oh three rifles, which in the book. There's this really wild way that uh, they arm themselves through their membership in the National Rifle Association. You you really have to read that one because it's so the short of it is they could get weapons of war mailed to their doorstep um, through their membership from the War Department from the War Department, they could get weapons grade, military grade weaponry mailed to their doorstep. And that's how they armed themselves. <laughs> and and um, I, because of my um, background in law enforcement, I, I didn't, most of the historians and the journalists at the time, I think the historians at the historians that looked at it since kind of uh, recapitulated what the journalism at the time was saying, that these were crazies who ha- mounted no threat uh, to the uh, American government, that they were not lethal. And when I was looking at it objectively, um, and granted, I'm probably uh, one of the few historians that's trained on semi-automatic weaponry, um, I understood what they um what they were, what they were capable of doing. And I, that was another thing that kind of pushed me was that I wanted to change the narrative on the lethality of this group. I I wanted to show that they were not just a, most of the the historians and the journalists at the time called it a playful plot. And I'm thinking, man, Springfield 1903, that's a breech loading 30-06 rifle with a five round clip. That'll That'll shoot 60 rounds a minute. They also were stealing from the Natick Armory. They stole two Browning Light machine guns that goes uh, 300 rounds a minute. In fact, the Browning Light machine gun was so lethal that by the 1980s, certain air forces were placing it on their on their airplanes, um, uh, even up through the early 1980s. Um, and so, um, uh, so, so these were weapons of war that had uh, serious consequences. And um, that was one of the reasons. The espionage reason, too, was um, interesting to me. The tranche of World War II documents that were released in the mid-1970s and up to the early 80s, the first, you know, the Berlin Document Center documents and other tranches of primary source material, the historians who wrote about Nazi espionage in the United States tended to portray 
German intelligence capabilities is um, uh, rather attenuated and that the tradecraft was kind of stumbling and bumbling and not very efficient at all. And what I was looking at, I, I look at a um, an SS officer who came to Boston under diplomatic cover named uh, Herbert Scholz. And um, I'm finding him to be... Uh, an excellent spy master, an energetic spy master, and a guy who ran, in my view, ran circles around the FBI and about three or four other different U.S. intelligence agencies. And so um, I got just the opposite picture of what that first kind of wave of historiography on, on Nazi espionage in the U.S. seemed to be providing. When I was looking at my primary source documents and when I was running the equations and looking at what Scholz was able to do, I I, I just found him uh, found him to be an excellent spy master, and um, and so I'm I, I, I in many ways that that historiography is changing, and I hope that this book will kind of uh, move that uh, position along. So there's the there's the religious side, there's the intelligence side. The area that I'd like to get I think needs more um, research is. Um, research into the New York branch of the, of the Christian front. There were two separate branches, the New York branch and the Boston branch. The Boston branch was more directly connected to the British espionage apparatus in the U.S. But I think that the New York branch may have been controlled by Nazi intelligence, but I haven't been able to find the documents. And that's mainly because the FBI wasn't looking for those documents. Um, and those real, that real time file that I have simply doesn't, doesn't reflect that. So, um, I think more needs to be done in those areas. Amazing. Thank you. And it's, it's really powerful to see as you, you say that you sort of complicate or, or in many ways upend this, this kind of Whiggish kind of progressive, narrative of, of Catholic integration in U.S. history that you've, you've set out to, to complicate, right? And it's very powerful the way you do so. Um, to that end, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about, um, you, you contextualize some very specific uh, Catholic doctrine in this, this, this work. You bring it to the fore and say that there's specific kind of Catholic beliefs in this time period that need to be um, contextualized and understood um, for what they were and how they kind of intertwined with this emerging right-wing kind of paramilitarism, right? So I wonder if you could, you could speak a bit about the, the actual like Catholic kind of theological arguments that they were kind of latching onto and perverting or warping or even sort of logically following to their kind of conclusion in many ways, right? Yeah, I, I think it's both ways. I, I think they were mangling uh, authentic Catholic uh, theological positions, um, but then uh, mangling them in a way that were usable for them. I I kind of um, I've been influenced by the the work of the historian Martin Conway, who writes about uh, religion and politics. And in my view, um, re- uh, religion uh, religion in my view can spur political action, and that's a difficult equation to make for a lot of historians because of the kind of the um, isolated view of religion and historiography today. In this case, I see religion as not only front and center in the case, 
but as internalized by the subjects in order to move them to toward terrorist action against their government and also toward uh, espionage activity. In other words, that there are, there are two major theological impulses I look at. These are impulses that were dominant in the 1930s through the 1950s, but are no longer even uh, in the conversation today. And they are firstly, mystical body of Christ theology, mystical body of Christ theologies coming out of St. Paul, uh, Pauline theology, the part to the whole, the head to the body, that when when uh, one part of uh, the Christian apparatus is harmed somewhere in the world, then all Christians, and particularly Catholics, through their baptism are also harmed as members of the mystical body of Christ. So when communists execute by firing squad, Catholic priests and nuns and seminarians in Barcelona, this theology says that the folks in Boston are really harmed by that and that they feel their pain uh, as co-religionists. And uh, this is, uh, my view, important because I position that theology as a transnational theology, breaks down borders, it's supranational. It basically uh, creates a a co-religious cohesion, which is not um, cognizant today, um, even among uh, Catholics. Um, The the kind of this move towards synodality today is in many ways towards, uh, in my view, uh, kind of a um, kind of a regionalization and a contextual theology, whereas Back in the 1930s, 1940s, mystical body of Christ theology said that there were no borders and that the communists in Mexico who were persecuting or the alleged communists in Mexico who were persecuting Catholics, um, that pain is felt across the border in the U.S. and, um, and around the world. The other theology or kind of ecclesiology that's dominant during this time is Catholic action, which was originally founded in the 1920s as a social uplift movement, but becomes more and more anti-communist in its um, orientation as communism becomes the uh, threat to the institutional church. And so, um, and so the, 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 both the, Christian Front itself, which had, for our listeners, it had anywhere from 30,000 to 100,000 members at its peak. The largest FBI estimate is 100,000 members. By 1940 and 41, the FBI estimate is down to about 30,000. But historians have been all over the map on whether it was even as small as 1,500. My point in the book is not about arguing numbers. It's about arguing ideas and impulses. And so um, this Catholic action theology um, gives them moral um, underpinning for them to claim that what they are doing by uh, by um, their activism and their terrorism is uh, is authentically Catholic. They say, we're doing Catholic action. In fact, uh, the Jesuits at America Magazine wrote two editorials bolstering the Christian Front's claim in 1940 that they should not be prosecuted by the U.S. government precisely because they were doing Catholic action. And the government more or less kind of um, 
steps back a bit after those claims are made because of uh, religious liberties issues. And um, I got to say, the Christian Front was very adept at um, at getting the pulse of the national security apparatus in the U.S. and then stepping around them. Yeah, thank you very much. It's 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 really powerful the way in which you basically kind of show that we can't understand the, the the mentalities of these these activists without understanding the kind of religious impulses that they were were playing on, right? Kind of centering the the theological components to the story, right? As as integral to explaining the behavior here, right? Um, Can I go with that a little bit? Absolutely, I think- yeah. Part, part of part of the historiography, I think, is um, as Rick Perlstein points this out in 2017. He he wrote a, a front page article for the New York Times magazine. He didn't say it quite as starkly as I'm going to say it here. It was basically that the the profession in its lean towards the Marxist critique and kind of the dominance of the Marxist critique in the in professional history. Uh, more or less set up my position um, because um, because Marxist historians are squeamish about religion and they they just don't it's not part of the uh, it's not part of the um, and I, and I published in socialist history um, uh, but it's um, it's it's not it's not part of the quiver and um, and it's it, it's it's a little bit um, it's unknown territory, right? So you're kind of like God, you know. How how do yeah? How do how do you unravel the um, the theological impulses when you don't know theology? And I say at the beginning of the book, as a historians, in order to understand particularly the religious right, in order to understand the religious right, you need to become exegetes. And what that means is you need to know your Bible. You kind of, you kind of need to know religion, like you need to know what is the impulse behind a mystical body of Christ theology. You've got to, you've got to know Paul to the Romans in Paul to the Romans kind of allows in many ways, or is the, is the mangled warped uh, vision that allows them to, to pick up a Springfield rifle. And um, you know, that sounds radical, but they, they, uh, the documentation I have from these folks as they're languishing in prison is, is they're actually uttering the words mystical body of Christ. We did this. They, they, John Cassidy, the leader of the New York group that was charged with sedition in his jail cell says outright that uh, we did this to fight for the mystical body of Christ against the perceived enemy of global communism, expansionist global communism. So you have to you have to understand, you know, Paul the Romans to figure out why that guy's sitting in jail. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, I I I don't shy away from that. I was, um, you know, I've all, I've always been kind of interested in uh, in the role of religion in in connection to uh, political action. But so there's this kind of there was this kind of lacuna that was uh, created, uh, this this gap in the historiography. And, um, you know, um, I, I enjoy studying theology. I'm an ordained Catholic priest, um, and um, I get, get inspired by, uh, by theology. And so I can see how these folks uh, did so as well under really 
uh, warped influences and um, and and history. The, the the context kind of shapes their their political vision uh, and and melds the theology with a warped and and uh, un- become what becomes an unchristian kind of uh, political vision. Yes, thank you very much. Um, I kind of want to talk a bit more about something you've you've alluded to a few times, and it's it's a really interesting um, theme in your work, and I've just would like to hear hear more about it. Um, as you study the the espionage side of things, right, sort of getting into the Nazi connection, right, of of Schultz and, and his his SS or previous also SA background, right, um, and in your kind of move within the historiography on espionage about kind of painting Nazi spy masters in the U.S. is actually quite adept and and skilled at what they were doing, right. Um, you you basically are throughout looking at the the kind of the FBI, the different kind of military intelligence agencies here in the U.S., the prosecution offices here in the U.S. Um, you sort of, in many ways, you know, rightly so, and you, you show with much evidence, prove that they were pretty much either inept at best or perhaps outright corrupt at worst, and writing usually some sort of horrifying combination of those two, right? Um, and as you said, the the MI6 and the SS were able to sort of, as you said, dance circles around their U.S. counterparts, right? So in your assessment, kind of what accounts for this, this discord, right? Was it just kind of new world naivete and kind of versus old world um, um, kind of more cynical, skilled history of spying? I'm just kind of curious as to what this, what accounts for this? So in my view, it's two things. Uh, firstly, um, the U.S. intelligence apparatus is in its infancy. And so I kind of cut them a break in a way because they are not uh, inclined towards the intelligence game. They, um, for example, the FBI special agent in charge in Boston, where Scholes was infiltrating all sorts of uh, military uh, bases and organizations that that this guy didn't know about, and also recruiting agents all over the place and running spy ring. He ran about 10 or 12 different spy rings in New England, all under the nose of uh, Virgil Peterson, the SAC special agent in charge. Um, Peterson had cut his teeth on the um, on the Dillinger case. And so he he rose in the ranks of the FBI as one would in the 1930s by stopping bank robbers and, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, um, pushing back on auto theft. And uh, and these were, you know, the I was I, I used to be a gumshoe cop. I mean, I walked the beat. Right. So I know I, I know what kind of jazz is. Um, a, 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 a traditional cop up, you know, these are kind of the crimes that are in the code and intelligence is a far horizon at best. And so, and so they, they just weren't, um, they weren't trained for it. And the second part is uh, that I think most historians of intelligence uh, will agree that there was a mentoring relationship between the British and the Americans that that the coordinator of information 
position, which is the forerunner to the Office of Strategic Services, which is the forerunner to the CIA. All of that was midwifed through the British. But what I think historians have kind of missed is that relationship goes both ways. I mean, it's not it's not just a um, a, a a beneficial relationship for the United States in this mentoring process. It's beneficial for the British. The British, the British had their national interests at heart in creating the American intelligence apparatus. And what this book points out is that, um, in fact, what this book documents, in my view, is the first illegal intelligence operation run by a foreign country against uh, uh, the host government. Um, it's basically a, a documentation of non-adversarial spying. And um, the special relationship is so special that um, that the British end up, in my view, undermining um, the uh, undermining democracy in a way. Um by, by targeting Americans unwittingly. So these Americans are all unwitting. Basically, um, if you read the book, uh, one of the more humorous consequences, in my view, is that um, the entire Boston Police Department, which is filled, the ranks filled with Irish Catholics, have no idea that they're being manipulated by a British intelligence operation. I mean, it's just wild stuff. Uh, and so, so that's um, uh, that's one of the areas that I think is happening in the intelligence game is that the Americans are kind of groping um, as as an, as newborns in the intelligence field, and then they're also not. There, there are there. You know, Adolf Burley in the State Department was skeptical of what the British were doing, and he was he he was. He was um, he had his uh, his eyebrows raised, um, but no one else did, and and so the and so the British just kind of ran these ran this operation a front operation front organization in the U.S. and I think it um, the consequence of that operation is is chilling because of if if you read the book the social unrest in 1943 and the Catholic on Jewish rioting that erupts in Boston. In my view, I I argue that. The result of a um, of a beautifully run secret British intelligence operation. One of the results of that, when 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 the circus packed up and left town, one of the results of that was um, violence and social unrest in 1943 in Boston that no one could have um, could have forecast, um, and uh, it forced the Christian Front underground and it forced Moran to. Um, orchestrate, in my view, uh, a set of social uh, consequences that were, um, uh, that, that scarred the community. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, in many ways, horrifying to see just how high the stakes were, not only in terms of the, you know, attempts at a potential coup or a putsch here in the US, like out of the New York branch, but also just the, the, um, street violence that ensued in Boston. So among the uh, New York seditionists, a power struggle emerges within the Christian front in the summer of 1939. Um, Now keep in mind, 
the power struggle emerges between um, between people whom historians have written nothing about, really. Okay, so this guy John F. Cassidy is the leader of the Christian Front group in New York. He's uh, kind of leading up the seditionists, and into town comes a guy named Joseph E. McWilliams, who starts a competing organization in the spring of 1939 called the Christian Mobilizers, and he uh, has some success in um, having street meetings throughout uh, Flatbush and into Manhattan. Um, And his Christian mobilizers are probably the most aggressively anti-Semitic, more even anti-Semitic than the Christian front. They're the most um, kind of thuggish style of... um, of, of extremists uh, in New York at the time. And he tries to merge with the Christian front. McWilliams understands that because of the backing of Coughlin, or at least the inspirational backing of Coughlin and his 30 million listeners on the radio, that he's going to have much more success if he can overtake the leadership of the Christian front rather than continue to stay on his own with the mobilizers. Um, Walter Winchell starts calling him Joe McNazi uh, because he's, in fact, on the cover of the book, I have a picture of Joe McNazi. Um, He takes a, he starts running for Congress in 1940 on a a, a platform he calls the American destiny party. He runs, he runs in Congress, New York. He takes a Canastota wagon all over New York and he stands on the front of the Canastota wagon giving stump speeches, calling out Jews, you know, basically um, giving anti-Semitic speeches. And his platform, his political platform is is anti-communist and anti-Semitic in, in nature. He decides to try to push Cassidy out of the leadership role of uh of the Christian front. But what happens is, is from what we can see, the um, higher echelons of the Christian front, including Coughlin, step in. And um, there's this, there's this very interesting dynamic where in the Christian front, the lay people do the talking, but the priests in the background do the strategizing. And the, the priests in the background in this case decide that Joe McWilliams is not amenable to take over the leadership of the front for, for two reasons. He um, has an arrest record, which the priests are very cognizant will not go well with the American public. So he does, they don't, they want someone in leadership without an arrest record. And he's a former member of the KKK. He used, he was working in the oil fields in Oklahoma in the 1920s and has a record with the KKK. He has a notable, um, history with the KKK. And so they decide, so the, the clergy decide um, that Williams is, Mick Williams is a no-go. Now, interestingly enough, you know, Mick Williams, no one has heard of him in terms of the history of the right wing, except for the most important sedition case in, in legal history of the U.S., uh, Mick Williams v. USA, otherwise known as the Great Sedition Case. His name, his name was the primary name attached to that. Um, and that, but that's another story. That's that's a legal. That's a part of American legal history that takes place between 1942 and 1944. Back here, when this power struggle took place, it was 1939 and 1940 when he was trying to take over the Christian front. Um, the other side of that coin is what happens in Boston. Um, mainly for your listeners, when the FBI shuts down and uh, 
the Christian front in New York through arresting the leadership and impounding their weapons and bombs um, and then putting them on trial, a trial which they were not acquitted, but no low prost. In other words, the, the, um, the government's case faltered for reasons which you can read about in the book, which are quite fascinating in my view. Um, and, um, and so the movement moves up toward Boston where there's this energetic organizer named, uh, Francis P. Moran. Um, so the organization stays extant. That was one of my research problems. I, I, uh, one of the reasons that kind of got me interested in the project as well was how come it was shut down in New York and then remained a constant on the Boston scene really through from 1940 to 1942. And that's what got me digging around as well. Um, but the reason uh, that um, in, in terms of power, um, Moran, both Moran and Cassidy are foot soldiers of Father Coughlin. In other words, Coughlin keeps his distance. He gives them inspiration. He gives them some guidance through proxy priests on uh, local priests. Uh, but then he leaves them alone. He knows that they're already in his fold. And so he allows them to kind of autonomously work regionally for his goals, which are anti-Semitic in nature and anti-communist as well, um, and anti-Roosevelt. And, um, and so what emerges in Boston is um, a, an authentically Catholic movement run by Moran, who's a, a dropout of Catholic seminary. So he's fully versed in mystical body of Christ theology. He thoroughly knows what Catholic action is. In fact, in many ways, he's almost like a failed pastor. And so this organization, which is all lay, in other words, non-ordained people and majority female, by the way, um, that this organization is, um, is kind of his movable parish. It's kind of, he, he's, he's kind of the Bishop of his own organization. And, um, and in terms of in terms of leadership, he is the Catholic representative of this kind of extremist uh, group, and he's working hand in hand with a Nazi. This is where I see the difference in Boston. The Nazi intelligence, German intelligence, actually, in my view, um, subdivided the religions, and they they. They targeted Catholics, qua Catholics. They wanted Moran to lead a Catholic group. And then a guy that no one's ever heard of as well, uh, but was extremely important at the time, a guy named George Dietheridge, starts the American Nationalist Confederation as a Christian organization. And, and he's getting full support of Nazi intelligence. I've actually have that documented. The, the Germans sent him, actually, he gave a speech in Erfurt that the FBI knew nothing about, but he was handled by, by German intelligence from 1938, really through 1942. Uh, this is, this is a guy named Dietrich. Again, we're kind of still figuring out who these people were on the right and everywhere you see kind of the fingerprints of, of German intelligence. But the thing about Dietrich is the, Germans, he's going to be our Protestant voice and Moran's going to be our Catholic voice. And um, there was kind of a siloing of religions. There wasn't any kind of um, ecumenical uh, anti-Semitism uh, going on. Um, they, I think the, the, the Germans um, kind of divided the religions and on this, um, uh, on this quest to meet the uh, – to meet Nazi ideological goals in the U.S. And I, I think, uh, in my view, they're quite quite successful at it. 
Thank you very much. Yeah, I um, I kind of want to to switch. I mean, or I guess not switch, but kind of double down on this 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 questioning about uh, far right extremism, right? Which is to say, you do a really really powerful and important um, job of shining the spotlight on extremists normally kind of dismissed as quote unquote failures or quote unquote fringe fanatics, that kind of thing, right? And kind of, kind of bringing them back from the margins and saying, we need to kind of center them in their, their own right to, to kind of see what they can, their narratives and warnings, their, their, their stories can tell us. Right. So I'm wondering, this is sort of the, the presentist question, but it's kind of the question I think that's on most people's minds right now. Right. Which is, um, what does what light does this book kind of shed on the U.S.'s current political atmosphere? Right, what are the implications for for today with the the rise of right wing paramilitaries, militias, um, putsch attempts, um, conspiracy theorists, those kind of, and also the the religious right as well? I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that for us. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, as far as the implications for today, it's it's more or less based on what I read about in the newspapers. But my informed opinion is um, whenever I do read the newspapers, I'm in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking about the New York uh, sedition case. And um, my, my instinct was that um, this was a serious matter. My um, view of it was uh, from my experience that this was a lethal proposition um, and that it needed to be taken seriously. And so uh, when I hear about uh, sedition and insurrection in the news today, I'm informed by my historical researches and uh, my point of view 10 years ago when I started this project was that that this group meant business, that this group had an ideology that moved them toward political action that had a lethality to it, not only destruction of property, but destruction of persons. I mean, you really don't steal Browning light machine guns um, to, um, to take care of property. It's uh, there's a weapons of war. Um, and uh, the role, the role of religion was dismissed in the court case, both the defense and the prosecution agreed that they would drop any reference to religion in the court case, uh, which I've, I found extraordinary because the name of the group was the Christian Front. And so I think there's still a proclivity in American society and American jurisprudence today and American national security apparatus to, 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 to drop the religion, to drop the religious component. Um, and, um, and, and I think, you know, religious liberty protected under the first amendment, um, and free speech goes, goes, uh, is, is a liberty in itself, but I think it has to be, um, it has to be assessed in relation to armed (laughs) revolt, um, to intentionality, of revolt, uh, intentionality of sedition, um, and and those are the areas that that really need to to be to be assessed. So I think, um, in looking at today, I think a um, a lot of folks would say, like they did in 1940, these criticisms just need to be dismissed out of hand or quickly. And, and I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Um, I, I, I think, 
I think they ought to be investigated and I, I think they ought to be, um, they ought to be assessed and, um, and that um, they can, you know, hopefully a piece of what this book does is allow historians to assess them in, in a larger arc of American history of the 20th century. Amazing. Thank you so much. And yeah, I just want to, um, you know, say that the book is truly a triple threat, right? It integrates a vast array of primary sources, makes sharp, insightful interventions in numerous fields of historiographies, right? And it presents also a page-turning spy thriller. So um, I just wanted to kind of bring us to a close here by asking sort of what are your, what are your plans for your next project? You know, historians always have their next, their next big idea on the, on the docket, right? What, what's, what's next for you? Yeah, so my plans for the next book includes spies, and it includes the church. And um, so, what I've um, what I've been working on is uh, again something that nobody really knows anything about. Um, it's interesting, you know, the stuff that I work on. It's always an uphill climb because the, I always work on stuff that no one has ever heard of before. So no one ever heard of the fact that Pope Pius the Twelfth considered Hitler's Pope in the historiography, um, sought vigorously to get clemency for Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, the atomic spies. And uh, I've been able to secure documents from the newly released Pius Twelve papers, the Truman Library, the Eisenhower Library, a number of different tertiary uh, archives. And um, what's coming across to me is that for, for that, that this Pope, by 1953, when the Rosenbergs, two secular Jewish communists, are about to are in Sing Sing, about to head to the to the death house, um, that he's vigorously trying to make um, uh, uh, connections with the White House to have the have both Truman and Eisenhower, because of course the the case dragged on, have them grant clemency to Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, and it's. Uh, there's a lot of actually a lot of drama in that story, so that's that's what I'm working on, and um, hopefully it'll be a short book, and um, but a, but something that people can uh, can sink their teeth into. Awesome, amazing, yeah, it's really cool to see the your ideas kind of take new directions, right? But also to see the kind of um, continuing threads throughout your 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 work, right? Um, well, thank you very much for being with us here today. I really appreciate your taking the time out of your day to, to do this interview. And um, thank you very much. I recommend everyone go grab a copy of his new book out now through Harvard Press. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Eric. It's been uh, wonderful to be here with you and to talk about these things that are have been important to me for the last 10 years. Thanks so much.